Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The competition for strategic advantage in economic and military affairs depends more and more on critical materials. Now the Energy Department has launched an initiative it calls the Critical Materials Collaborative. Among its goals, to accelerate a domestic supply chain for critical materials. For more, we turn to the Senior Technology Manager for the Energy Department's Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technologies Office, Helena Kazdozian. Ms. Kazdozian, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the basics here. What materials are we talking about? Is it lithium to put in batteries, or or does it go way beyond that? It definitely goes beyond that. So actually, just um, this summer, we released a new critical materials assessment um, looking at what materials are critical for the clean energy transition, um, both the short and medium term. Um, so we think about those in a couple different material classes. We have the earth elements. Um, these are generally used in magnets for wind turbine generators and electric vehicle motors. Um, we have the battery materials, uh, you know, for the lithium ion batteries. Um, so lithium, cobalt, nickel. We have uh, semiconductor materials, uh, you know, silicon, gallium, uh, silicon carbide that are used in uh, solar photovoltaics, um, efficient lighting. Uh, we have lightweight materials, so like magnesium and silicon are, and aluminum are used in alloys uh, to lightweight vehicles. Um, we have platinum group metals used for clean hydrogen. And then we also have um, copper and electrical steel on the list. These are pretty ubiquitous materials, but are especially used in uh, transformers and uh, motors for electrical grid and also for, for powering energy. All right. So that's a pretty comprehensive list. Is it fair to say or accurate to say that quite a number number of these are in abundance in places elsewhere than the United States? Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, we have some of the materials here in the United States. Um, other materials, uh, you know, are concentrated in other countries like cobalt, uh, pretty notably uh, concentrated in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Right. And a lot of them are in China, too, aren't they? That's right. And there is also the initiative that China has called Belt and Road, where they're trying to get access to the minerals and materials in countries like the Congo throughout Southeast Asia and so forth, where they make investments. That's going on, fair to say? Yeah. And I think more than just controlling the upstream mining of materials, um, a lot of the processing is actually concentrated in, in China. And so that's a part of our strategy as we're building out the domestic critical material supply chains is making sure that we have the capacity to refine and process these materials. Otherwise, if you just mine the materials, you'll have to export them, right? You won't be able to keep them in the United States and support the manufacturing these. All right. So tell us more about this initiative, the uh, Critical Materials Collaborative. What form does it take and, and uh, you know, what is the uh, what is the activity that it's actually doing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this has really been, I think, a long time coming. You know, we first had our, our first uh, critical material strategy in 2010. It's the first time we assessed what materials are critical. It uh, enabled us to start thinking more strategically about uh, what, what our investments look like. So we had investments in the Critical Materials Innovation Hub, or CMI, that used to be called the Critical Materials Institute. They've been operating for a decade, doing early stage research. At the same time, uh, we had a program looking at producing birth elements from uh, coal-based feedstocks. So can we transform, uh, you know, this mining waste into a resource in the United States? But this is kind of the first time the department's thinking about how do we align 
all of these into some shared goals, right? And it's really important now because we are sitting here uh, ten, over 10 years later with over $8 billion um, from the bipartisan infrastructure law for critical materials provisions to build out actual supply chains, right? Commercial facilities. We have the Inflation Reduction Act with tax credits also to incentivize that production, manufacturing and recycling. So we we have kind of a gap right now. We have all this applied R&D, really cool innovation happening, and we have deployment happening, but we don't have the connective tissue to get that innovation into the world. And if we're going to be globally competitive, we really need to be innovative, right? We, we need to reduce the costs of these technologies. We want to reduce the environmental and health impacts while increasing the efficiency and the circularity of the materials. So that's kind of what we're trying to do here. Uh, we want to be that connective tissue to really accelerate the uh, adoption of these uh, critical materials innovations into the um, into the supply chain as it's being built out. But we also want to be building out the innovation ecosystem around that, right? It takes uh, uh, researchers of all kinds from different sectors, national labs, academia, industry. Sure. So, so we're really trying to align um, what we're doing in the department with other agencies and with the research community so that we're, you know, trying to achieve a shared set of goals. We're speaking with Helena Kozdozian. She's Senior Technology Manager for the Energy Department's Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technologies Office. So a couple of questions. Is there the belief, I mean, surely the processing capabilities are totally within the power of the United States to develop and do. But what about supplies where there simply aren't that much availability of the basic material? Or is the thinking that we've got the material if we wanted to be better at mining, better at finding it in large amounts of ore or whatever the case might be, that we actually could become self-sufficient? Is that part of the thinking? So I think the idea that the United States could be self-sufficient for all critical materials uh, is probably not realistic. We do need to, you know, work with uh, allied countries to to source some materials. But it's not just looking at unlocking, you know, new mines. There's lots of other things we can do, right? So we actually have um, one of our offices looking at, you know, mining of the future program to to look at really surgical approaches to um, to remove materials from the earth in a way that doesn't leave a new legacy of mining waste in the United States really looking to improve the sustainability of those practices, but also looking at unlocking the mine waste, right? Maybe we can achieve 50% of, of our needs from these, even though they're low concentrations, can we look at innovation to get them out? We also look at actually reducing our need our reliance, right? So you can actually try to engineer out the materials, you know, and I've been doing that in batteries for a long time with cobalt, and there's lots of examples of that. Can we actually make sure we're being good stewards, increase the efficiency of the, you know, how we're processing these? And then looking at circular economy, right? Extending the lifetimes of those materials in use, and eventually they'll have to be recycled, right? Want to be positioned to that as well. So it's really a, a diversified approach that we take in the Department of Energy. And with the money you have, you will be then doing what? Issuing research grants or creating incentives for industry? What form will the work take to create that connective tissue? Yeah, so within the CMC, uh, we won't be, uh, it doesn't have any money on its own. What it does, it's aligning the offices that are competing out research to coordinate. To be a member of the CMC, you want to go out and uh, compete for for funds, but then we'll have lots of opportunity to engage, and I can talk more about what that will look like. But right now on the streets, we have two funding opportunities. One is through the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management. It's $150 million really to advance R&D um, and 
and really thinking about like how can you translate that basic discovery into R&D as well as scaling it up. And then we also have in my office, the Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technologies office, we have a critical materials accelerator program on the streets. And that's really thinking about prototyping, maturing new technologies, kind of de-risking that step before you can go to a big, uh, a bigger pilot. The CMI is a big part of the CMC as well. This is Again, 10 years standing, a really robust innovation ecosystem and engine all on its own. So we'll be able to learn from their experience as well. So that's how to be a member is, you know, go out to funding that's being coordinated through the CMC. You must collaborate with some of the other federal agencies, as you mentioned. I imagine commerce maybe might have a big part of this and Defense Department? Yeah, you know, we just started the CMC. We launched it in September, or we're still getting our footing underneath, but we will have other agencies engaged. Certainly, the Department of Interior, NSF, DOD, wherever there's research alignment, we want to have active engagement, but we'll certainly continue to coordinate with other agencies that help set the policy framework, right? So we understand the context. Given the prevalence of some of these minerals in places that are we'd rather not be concentrated, what about some of the other NATO allies or Canada, Mexico, maybe even South America, where access might be more assured, at least than it might be in China, if, just, if China decides, well, no more cobalt for you, no more lithium you know, for you. Are other nations maybe part of this alignment? Yeah, the United States uh, engages in a lot of different international engagement. We work through the International Energy Agency ministerials to coordinate with other countries. We have bilateral agreements with Canada and Australia and, and I think Brazil as well. The State Department has the Mineral Security Partnership Initiative that's getting going. Um, I'm not an expert on the international front, but certainly we do coordinate with other countries. And by the way, what is your background that you bring to this? Are you primarily a program type of federal person or are you a materials and manufacturing person? I think myself as, as a technologist, my background is in electrical engineering. I get my PhD at Iowa State. I was at the Ames Laboratory for a couple of years before coming to DOE as a AAAS fellow and then stayed on what was used to be the Advanced Manufacturing Office, now AMTO, to continue to work on critical materials. I've been working on this issue for about 10 years. I started researching this topic when I was in my, my graduate studies. Interesting. Well, we're glad you're on the job. We should say Dr. Helena Kozdozian is Senior Technology Manager for the Energy Department's Advanced Materials and Manufacturing Technologies Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for your interest. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, she even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.